Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str. somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayic or uh never mind welcome back everyone we are so happy that you're here listening all two of you maybe three now stats are growing that's good news I'm here with my buddy, Kevin, Hello. and we're, you know, we're talking about stuff and we're talking about stuff that's not cool. Is, is and, and so stuff, not, is it unreal? The it's, stuff it is real, about? but it's uncool. Real. Wow. Yeah. So we need to, segue into, something, <laughs> we need to segue, segue into something that's, that's real, but also is cool that you didn't know was real and stuff. Yeah. Like something like that. So that's what we're going to do. We're gonna we're gonna segue into talking about stuff that's cool and stuff that's real. How does that? Every sound? episode's a word jumble. Every episode, every that's time. The shtick, man. That's you got to do shtick. it man, at this point. It's the shtick. Here's something that's real. We don't remember the name of the show. That's real. <laughs> we change the name of the show every week. Um, yeah. So we we're gonna do that. We're gonna talk about cool stuff. And I was thinking about this the other day because I've been well, not I shouldn't say I've been planning a trip, but. I've had a dream to plan a trip down here, um, down there for some time. And, you know, we've got some friends who speak fluent Spanish. And so it'd be a perfect couple to go with the kids get in the way and life gets in the way. So I've, I haven't done it yet. Then I also realized that we haven't talked about this particular site <clears throat> before on the show, maybe come up in passing, you know, whatnot, but I yeah, haven't I think actually we've probably, about- yeah, I think we've mentioned it. We probably mentioned it. We, we haven't done an episode about it. It's though. one. Yeah. We haven't done an episode <clears throat> about it. And, you know, because most people already know that Machu Picchu exists and that it's real, I, I dug a little deeper and I, I didn't want to go too far down the conspiracy, you know, theory threads and all that. Because that's well, it's, what could be interesting, but it's not really what intrigues me about this place. You, you don't have to go that far to find cool stats and cool facts about Machu Picchu. And so that's what I wanted to, to talk about with some of these, they call them secrets, right? Because, you know, yeah. SEO. <laughs> yeah. But just things about Machu Picchu that you may not have realized before. I'm surprised we're not seeing a headline like Machu Picchu destroyed other cities with this one fact. You won't believe. You won't believe number 7. Other cities hate Machu Picchu for this. <laughs> That's there's the episode title right there. That's, what we'll That's it. it. You won't believe number 7. You won't believe. <laughs> you, you probably will believe. These aren't, you know, really crazy. We we consider ourselves your friendly travel agents and guides to the universe. And so if you are planning a trip to Machu Picchu, uh, do yourself a favor, check out some articles like this and see if there's something about these places that pique your interest more so than just going on a hike to see a really cool ancient city. Uh, because there's a lot, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to these places. 
Yeah, I know. So my fascination with Machu Picchu and, and other places at undiscovered locations around the world, I don't even remember when it began. It was well before I was a writer, but I probably came across stuff like this while I was reading yeah. the same sort of books that we write, action, adventure, thriller, that kind of thing. Because as you know, anyone listening to this, you know, we're authors and we write these kind of books where we like to, to tie history and science and technology together in ways that aren't here today, but are very real, at least in scope and possibility. And so things like that, things like Machu Picchu really spark our interest because it turns out we don't actually know what the city was for. There's some pretty good guesses. I should admit that. There's some pretty good guesses because we know who the Inca are. Uh, we know who other uh, native civilizations like the Maya, the Aztecs, Olmec, what they did with places like these. And certainly every civilization around the globe has <clears throat> some sort of spirituality that is a that's wired into our DNA. And so it, it spills forth through building massive, beautiful structures a lot of times. So that's usually what people say. Oh, this was a ceremonial site of some sort. This was a spiritual retreat of some sort. But some people say, some actual archaeologists say that this place, this Machu Picchu, could have been like a royalty's mansion, basically, yeah. a royalty's estate, which I find cool. I think it's annoying that, you know, they go to the grocery store that have to hike down, you know, 14,000 foot peak, get to the city. But, you know, whatever, maybe they just had enough slaves or, you know, servants or whoever to hike up and give them their groceries. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all that to say, that's the biggest um, mystery is what this place really was meant for. I've read, I'm sorry. This go is ahead. your story. No, dude, go ahead, man. This is, I'm just spilling No, this is here. one of those that's it's some truth. It's so incredibly fascinating to me, the entire topic of uh, Machu Picchu. And I actually did a, in college, um, as part of my major, I did a senior seminar that was focused entirely on Machu Picchu and the Inca. And, uh, you know, we did, we went to all these exhibits and we went, you know, we did a whole uh, trip. And, you know, so it was an exploration that sticks with me. I've actually, there's a theory that they had a sort of hanging garden scenario, like, okay. like the, uh, the Babylon. That's, it's called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Yeah, like uh, we said on the show well, recently. Yeah, we discovered know, that could have been discoveries. It probably was Nineveh misdirection. Yeah, yeah, but that they had that that they. So one of the one of the uh, thing, studies I read, they were theorizing like how do these people living because it was a it's a fully functional city, and they had signs of irrigation and you know, water delivery systems and things like that. But what about food? Because right, it's right. it's at a incredibly high elevation. So one of the theories was that they had early hydroponics, like they were actually growing fruits and vegetables without soil, <laughs> oh, nice. using just yeah. water. So that's that. I'm just throwing that in there. You, uh, that's cool. This I know I didn't. You I don't drive. think that's even on the list. I didn't see any of that reference, but yeah, I I'm absolutely not believe it. it. And that makes perfect sense that they would have yeah, to I'm do not that. seeing it. Um, anyway, that, soil would be the one difficult thing. Yeah, to get a continuous supply. And I'm not saying that you need. You know, as long as you have some fields, like you can plant some soil. But this is a big enough city that you would need a lot of open space to do real agricultural work. And yeah. even with terraces, uh, like this entire structure is kind of built on some terraced stuff, uh, it just may not be enough space. So I fully believe that there was some hydroponic action going on because this place, Machu Picchu, is not above the tree line. Yeah. And it is in, uh, and I don't know the actual rainfall, but it's in a pretty wet place of Peru. So 
rainfall wouldn't be a problem. Water wouldn't be a problem. And vegetation wouldn't be a problem. Being able to grow, it's not above the tree line. Here's the deal. So let's go all the way back. This is, I, I mentioned, I said the word undiscovered. Obviously not Machu Picchu has been discovered. We know it's there. You can go there. You can visit this place. But, you know, that's basically, here's what happened. We didn't know this thing was here for a long time, but we had, we knew the Inca were real, you know, up until relatively recent history, the 1900s, we had no idea there was a city hidden up above the clouds, which is quite literally what this would have been. You cannot see it from, you know, base camp, essentially. You can't see yeah. it from down where most of the Inca lived and and breathed. And so the legend of this place gets a little bit confusing. It's a little bit muddy because the person who who discovered Machu Picchu, uh, Hiram Bingham III, that is an English name if I've ever heard an English name. Hiram Bingham, yeah. He, he discovered. He was born uh, in Hawaii. He was born in, was he really? Yeah. But he's definitely English then. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, they're used like missionaries and stuff. They came from like England and the New England coast and then went to Hawaii. I don't know. It's a whole other episode. I read Michener's Hawaii and it talks about all that. So anyway, anywho, explorer Hiram Bingham comes out and in 1911, he is looking for this legendary city above the clouds called Vilcabamba. Now this city, Vilcabamba, was the capital city of the Inca that was actually a hidden capital. It was a secret city. And so when the Spanish came with their, you know, loving open-armed embrace, just wanting to help the Inca survive. No, I'm totally joking. They wanted to kill everybody and steal their gold. They show up on the coast in 1532 and they're like, hola. <laughs> and they say, our oro is hidden up in Vilcabamba. And you're never going to find us. Ha ha ha. See you later. And all the Inca ran to this hidden city. And so a lot of the Inca got away from the Spanish and the Spanish forever afterward have been looking for this legendary lost city of the Inca. Bingham yeah. comes by, you know, 300 years later, 400 years later and, and says, I'm going to go find it. And he's walking around the Peruvian countryside, walking around Peruvian mountains, looking for Vilcabamba. He finds Machu Picchu. And like most good explorers who don't want to be proven wrong, he doubled down on his theory that Vilcabamba and Machu Picchu were one and the same. When in fact, we don't think they are. It is firmly established that Machu Picchu is a whole different thing. Yeah. Uh, and it was just a quote unquote normal city. As abnormal as it sounds, it wasn't the lost city of the Inca. So this is cool. So there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of stuff to unpack. We're not going to get into it all, but it just was really cool. It turns out it wasn't this hidden city because when Bingham was there, there's actually three families living there. It doesn't say how many people, but there were three families of farmers, it says, living at the site. So I guess it answers our agriculture question. They did some kind of farming up there. Yeah. So this cool stuff, man. So this clearly has been well built. It's held up for, you know, a thousand years. And it is, I should say, it's actually positioned properly so that the equinoxes will cast shadows in certain ways. This is very common in most civilizations build their structures this way. So to some people that says that Machu Picchu was meant as like an observatory of sorts, like an observatory city, mm. again, goes back to the spirituality, the religion of the time when you look at the stars and that those are your gods, that kind of thing. I'm not convinced that's all it was for, because if I'm building a majestic city up in the clouds, I'm going to do it right. Regardless of its purpose, I'm going to probably align it to some celestial bodies because that's just fun. So I'm kind of, I kind of posit that, this is a city meant for something entirely different. We don't quite know exactly what it was for. And that that's just how you build cities back then. You you align yeah. them to certain celestial bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot here, man. Most Here's the best part about this. This actually speaks back to my college days 
when I went and, and traipsed around the countryside down in the Yucatan over in the Maya world, this is the same sort of thing. It turns out like this, there's so much growth that happens so quickly that we haven't uncovered all of Machu Picchu. There's stuff that you'll find. If you just yeah. walk around and try to get lost, there's like little trails, the paths that have been there for, for you know 500 years or whatever, and they will lead to other small structures that were just built out of the, the rocks of the mountain itself. Yeah. It also says that most of the impressive stuff about Machu Picchu is invisible. So in the same vein, we obviously haven't done major excavation here because it's a very delicate artifact. We don't want to mess it up. But we know somehow, um, some geologists probably studied the ground that it's on. And actually, it turns out this place was sculpted out of a notch between two peaks, basically literally just moving rocks around to create a relatively flat space. But then uh, there's an engineer who estimated that 60% of the entire construction at Machu Picchu is underground, yeah. meaning they dug deep foundations and they used crushed rock as drainage. There's, again, a lot of rainfall. And essentially, like it, it's like the tip of the iceberg, what you can see. And I, just, I thought that was fascinating because I just I assumed that a foundation in ancient times meant you just bury the, the you know, the capstone, not the capstone, whatever they're called, the, yeah, the capstone underground a little bit. Yeah. And that's about as far as you go. You just stick it down and hope it doesn't move. Um, and it turns out they knew that this mountain was prone to earthquakes and movement and things like that. So they dug way down into the ground and they used proper uh, drainage. Can't remember what it's called, but there's like a way to do it with pebbles and then bigger rocks and you just kind of like a french drain yeah this is cool stuff man this is this yeah. is all i just love this man I, there's so many things about the site that are intriguing you know the, you actually shared two articles and one of them mentions that the inca were just incredible stonemasons and so one of the things that that people talk about a lot is the fact that these structures are they're built with precisely cut stones yeah. that are stacked and placed upon each other with no mortar but the seams are so tight between them that it says here that you couldn't even get a knife blade through it i've actually there are people who have explored these who can't get like a sheet of paper in between some right. of the the seams in these rocks they're that precisely cut and well so, so that, that one always cracks me up because i've heard that about other other ancient structures and i'm always the the cynic and skeptic and i'm like don't you think that you know this place is prone to earthquakes things are moving around over time you know those rocks are rubbing against each other and they're just like making sand that fills the cracks and then water comes down and turns it into mortar like i'm yeah. sure that it was well built from the beginning i'm not denying well, that's that. a cynical but interesting perspective <laughs> but uh, don't you think those cracks any cracks that might have what about the structures in regions in? don't have earthquakes that have stone cut, cut that way you know, a lot of Incan and Mayan structures were like that, and they're not in, necessarily always in earthquake-prone areas. So I was laughing because I know that I'm being a jerk. Yeah, your okay. Theory, your theory stands, Kevin. I'll, All right. I'll allow it. I like your perspective on that, though. That that they, you know, what if they? Because there is a tendency in ancient cultures and and advanced ancient cultures where they learn how to use what they've got they and so it's that idea of of the obstacle is the way it's the same idea where okay we, we're prone to earthquakes and so stone moves across stone a lot what if we build things in such a way that the more tectonic instability we have the firmer things are you know we'll design these so that they'll grind against each other and fit perfectly over time that could be 
That's an interesting take. I've never heard of that before. Maybe I'm a genius. Maybe you are a genius. Like a geologist engineer. I mean, if you get a bag of rocks. Yeah. And and, and I'm not going to go to the whole Stephen Covey thing because we all we've done that before. We all know that's cool. But like literally just get a bag of rocks and sand and all that. And just if you shake it a bunch, it will eventually settle and then pack down naturally and not move anymore. They do this. All those rocks will be firm in there. So that's probably. Yeah. There's millions of hobbyists worldwide who do this all the time with rock tumblers. That's well, there you go. So that's the it's a natural process. It's how you know, if so, you you, this is you've got phenomenon, you know, the Grand Canyon and other canyons around the world that were carved over millennia by water and and, and moving through the region and carving out these pathways in stone that just, and once you've got a pathway, so the you know, it started as water goes where the it follows the path of least resistance so if it's following a path and over time it's taking deposits with it you know fast forward a million years or so and now that path's gotten so much easier for water to follow it continues to do that and so eventually you've got a grand canyon uh with a river at the bottom and you know people have done civilizations ancient civilizations have done some remarkable interesting things that took a grander view of time than what we are accustomed to. You know, you had civilizations that, that for 4,000 years tracked the movement of stars and things like that to the point of being able to predict, you know, what was going to happen thousands of years in advance. That's incredible. So this, we tend to think, Oh, no one would have even thought to think long term on something like this, you know, that these stones might wear each other down to where they fit perfectly. You know, we tend to think like that because in our culture and society, it's all about immediate results. The more immediate, the better. But and so we don't think long term, you know. Right. But these cultures did. They clearly did. They, you know, they mapped out the layout of their cities by the stars. They mapped out roads based on, you know, the way things were going to shift over time. They, you know, they knew how to cultivate things over millennia. And when people, the people who started it would no longer remember it. That's the importance of cultural memory, by the way, which is something I think we're in danger because of a lack of cultural memory in, in our current society. You know, everything is ephemeral, you know, the, Social media and you know, the Wikipedia, for example, is like the greatest collection of human knowledge mankind's ever put together. All it would take is, you know, someone trip over the electrical cord somewhere and it would be gone. You know, so we're a very ephemeral short, short term memory culture now. Yeah. Anyway, there may be a reason for that, though, according to my story. Ooh, let's talk about your story. Let's talk about my I'm, story. I'm, 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 I'm Machu Picchu'd out now. I need to uh, decompress with, with something a little different. As you and listeners are aware, I am a fan of alternate theories of reality, what, how our universe is structured. And we've gone through a gamut of these things, including you know holographic theory, the idea that we're living in a simulation, the idea that everything started you know this morning on Thursday at 9 a.m., that all our memories are false. You know, there's a lot of out there matrixy style theories about reality this one is like those it comes the article i'm i'm going to be quoting from comes from futurism which is which covers a lot of heady scientific topics if you haven't checked it out uh, it's one of my favorite sites 
This one's about artificial intelligence in a way. So AI is a big topic right now. We're talking about it a lot, Nick and I, and I'm, I've been watching a lot of these conversations with AI. And in fact, yesterday I watched one. I shared this with, with Nick and Ernie in our little Facebook channel. I don't know if any of them looked at it. It was frightening, but it was a story about a guy, and maybe I'll cover this in a future episode, but it's about a guy who used the GPT-3 AI Oh, I did read that. Yeah. He embedded it in a micro and in, in an Alexa capable microwave and gave it false memories because as a kid he had a, a an imaginary friend that was his microwave named Magnetron. And Magnetron was actually born, you know, in England in the like 1800s and he had a whole life. So this guy wrote all everything he could remember about his relationship with Magnetron and everything they'd ever imaginarily discussed and he gave it to this ai and the thing tried to kill him <laughs> yeah yeah that's right i remember that so it's a really fascinating story so anyway that's an aside but uh we'll talk about that maybe in another episode but related to that so ai research part of that there's a concept called neural networks and the long and the short of a neural network is it's an artificially generated version of the human brain in a way. Our brain is a collection of synapses and neurons, and they, they work in, in tandem to create a mind. And there are all kinds of theories about how the human mind works. And one of them is a sort of holographic theory that you've got all these nodes and neurons and synapses, and they all fire together, and it's like an electrical grid. And that the mind actually exists as a sort of hologram within that. That's one theory of how we are sentient and aware and, and cognizant. There is a scientist who has posited that he wrote an entire paper on this. His name is Vitaly Venturin, which I think is an amazing name. And he is from the University of Minnesota, Duluth. But he wrote a paper positing his theory that the entire universe is actually a neural network. So essentially an AI brain that is thinking and creating and doing things. And he actually uses this theory to explore the gap between uh, Newtonian physics and quantum physics. One of the problems with both quantum physics and Newtonian physics is whether or not they can explain how the universe works depends on your vantage point. So Newtonian physics has been traditionally very good at explaining how the universe works from a distance. So we we see theories of gravity, we see theories of so that's where you start to see the mechanics of the universe and you get you can get an explanation for why planets are revolving around a star rather than flinging off into space. You know, there's a lot that you can learn about the universe using Newtonian physics, but the the smaller you go, the less any of it makes sense. And you get into what Einstein called spooky physics. So quantum physics, spooky action at a distance. So quantum physics is much better explaining the world close up or at very infinitesimal sizes. That's what quantum actually comes from the word quanta, which means very small and self-contained packets. So quantum physics is really good at exploring how the universe works at that level where all the weird stuff is happening. But that's where you start to get things that don't make sense in the larger Newtonian universe. You have weird stuff like the double slit experiment. Me and uh, Nick and Ernie were just talking about this today where, you know, they're firing particles at a at these slits in a, in a phosphorescent with a phosphorescent sheet behind it. And the pattern starts to show up as 
both a particle and a wave. Um, that's the yeah. They're trying to figure really, out if light was was particle or is it wave because it and turns out it's both either way, and it turns out <laughs> yeah. it's both of them. Yeah. And they don't know why, and they can't explain why. And there's also something called the observer effect, where um, mm-hmm. an observer and their expectations will impact the outcome of certain this is experiments. Box, right? This is where that comes from. So you got a lot of theories that have come out of quantum physics, and they're all weird. This is where we get the idea of the many worlds theory, where essentially the idea is um, everything that could have happened from any set of decisions did happen, we're on a particular path. So there's an alternate. So if I turned right instead of left, there is a universe where I turned left instead of right. And then it just cascades from there. So I had coffee for breakfast. And then this universe, I had tea. So you've got, that's the whole idea behind the Star Trek style alternate reality idea. Um, and there's a lot of weirdness there, but there's a lot of evidence that can, can support that that exists, but uh, it's all countered in Newtonian physics. So there's a ongoing hunt for a unifying theory of everything. This is something like Stephen Hawking was very much involved in this. He, it was like his life's work. He's trying to come up with a way to reconcile quantum physics and Newtonian physics with a whole unified theory that explains everything. This theory of the world being a, or the universe being a neural network is this Dr. Vitaly Venturin's way of attempting to explain how this could be an answer, like how these two things could work together. He posits there's a sort, there are maybe a third or fourth and or fourth unknown physics that we haven't yet discovered and that we might be understanding so intuitively that we don't notice it so the idea here is he sees the universe as being a neural network or basically an artificial intelligence of its own think mind of god kind of thing Mm -hmm. and that we are fractal parts of that so we're sub modalities of a greater modality if you if you if that makes sense so we're an echo of the larger neural network so now, he's, he specifies that this is not the same as saying that the universe is a simulation. It's a mind. So, in a sense, it could be a simulation in that the mind could imagine all kinds of things. But from our vantage point, anything imagined by this mind would be reality. So, right. that's, and if you think about it, it's think about the logic of dreams. So, where we have a disconnect between quantum physics and Newtonian physics is very similar to the idea. None of this stuff is in the article, by the way. So if you're looking for it, this is all, I'm drawing all this out of Just previous. Riff. Yeah, but the if you think about the logic of dreams, you can have contradictory things happening, but they'll still make sense, right? Quantum physics and Newtonian physics are at times very contradictory, but still make sense, and the universe still functions. So, is the universe a dream? That's a question that gets asked by philosophers all the time. But there's a quantum physics reality underlying the idea that it could be a dream or it could be a hallucination. That's the philosophical implications of this. And this guy is very quick to say he has no time or concern about the philosophical questions. He's only um, focused on the physics of this. But it's it's just an interesting, there's a lot of connotation to this that I think is interesting He's he goes into uh, some detail in the article. This is an interview with this guy. Like, here's a quote. He says, 
one might argue that there are not two, but three phenomena that needs that need to be unified. So this is that idea. So it's quantum mechanics, general relativity, and the and observers or the observer effect. So right. he's thinking that obser- the observer is is one of the physics that we're ignoring, in a sense. It says 99% of physicists would tell you that quantum mechanics is the main one and everything else should somehow emerge from it, but nobody knows exactly how that can be done. So in his paper, he looks at the idea of the neural network as the fundamental structure of everything. Okay. Then you start to think that quantum mechanics, general relativity, relativity, macroscopic observers, Newtonian physics, all that stuff is a part of the neural network. So in the same way that our memory is different from our ability to predict things, right? So we've got these two systems that work in our neural network, our minds. They they are contradictory in a way. Like one projects forward, the other projects back. And right. But they still exist. They coexist and they serve each other. So my ability to predict what's going to happen next feeds from my ability, my observations that I've already had in the past. So, and the same could be true in the reverse. You know, my observations of the past may be colored by what I think is going to happen in the future or what I predict is going to happen in the future. So I may put a different interpretation on my memory than what I had at the time that it happened. By the way, again, none of that stuff's in this article. But. No, I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm, that, <laughs> that's fascinating. I'm reading a book right now by Douglas E. Richards. Um, mm. He's a good guy, a friend of mine, writes so, you know, in our genre a little bit, maybe a little bit more slanted to sci-fi. Yeah. But he, I think he's a scientist. I think he's got a background as, as a physicist or something like that. It very much comes across in his work. But the book I'm reading, or the book I think I just finished, I can't remember. I read at night, so I have no idea what book I'm reading it is. And to be fair, his books are all fantastic, but they are all like almost the same book. It's just like the same thing. And I love it. It's That's exactly what I want. It's like watching action movies. Yeah. Anyway, it, he talks about that, how the radioactivity, radioactive decay of an atom, if you have two exactly atoms, they decay in, in random right. different ways. And it's not... It, he's positing that it may not actually be random, but that one could be acted on by the future. Yeah. Instead of the past. Yeah. You know, there's a one from the, you know, anyway, there's a lot more to than that, obviously, but that just gives you a glimpse of how much we don't know about all this stuff that we think we know. The fact that there's something in the future that could, that actually affects our observation of it in the present as it's unro- unrolling. We already know from experiments and observation that we are receiving radio bursts that started at the end of the universe and projected backward. Like we already know that's a thing. We can measure it mostly because what we, one of the ways they do that, if I'm remembering this right now, now I really am riffing, but the idea was, <laughs> you know, if I detect a radio burst in 1950 and I measure it and I know that here's its frequency and here's its level of power basically. Okay. So then I measure again, and that same signal has been ever constant over the decades, but it's getting stronger the further we go forward. So right. 10 decades later, it's stronger and uh, more persistent than it was in the 50s. So the conclusion is it started in the future and is getting weaker as it gets into the past. Yeah, and then they've got, you know, there are certain quantum particles or subatomic particles that we've measured we think are moving backwards in time and 
you know, there's a lot to that. So time travel is absolutely possible is what we're hearing. In fact, that's a scientific certainty at this point. Time travel exists. We just, it may not be what we always hoped it would be. It's in the theoretical realm in the sense that we can't do it, but it it could happen if we had certain variables that. Then you, you yeah, you run into the paradox wall though. So if time travel is possible and can exist, why aren't we seeing any time travelers? So that must not exist. But that's where the many worlds interpretation comes in because since every decision has a branch universe or infinite number of branch universes, you know, if you were to transplant someone from, you know, 50 years in my future to today, then the future I'm moving toward would automatically be different than the one they came from because you know, or or let's say you transfer them to 10 years ago in my life. The life that I lived from 10 years ago to today was one path. But when they arrived, their their mere existence, this is the observer effect, would change reality. And so we'd be on a different branch than we were just yeah. by the fact of being there. So time travel is entirely possible. But in but we're living through a universe where it hasn't happened or where it hasn't happened yet, or if it did happen, you know, it happened in a different universe. And so that's the weirdness about all this. It's like, you can, anything is, anything really is possible at that point. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's some nerdy stuff, but I, this is the stuff that fascinates me. And especially as I study history, because you start to realize there are so many unexplained things in history. What if they could be explained by something like, you know, why is it that there are disparate cultures that had no contact with each other who all went in the same direction with things like architecture and science? And, you know, they discovered a lot of the same stuff, although they would have been so far apart that there was no chance that they knew each other. Right. And there are multiple ways to explain that. But one one of those ways is if we are in a neural network and a, a quote-unquote artificial intelligence, which is not artificial, really. It's a, right, right. An, a, a natural intelligence that is the entire universe. So if we really are in that, then things like zeitgeist and shared um, memory and the things that, that we have in common with um, others that we shouldn't have in common with them are all part of the memory of the universe. It explains why that's possible. Yeah. I like it. So. Anyway, I know I get off on these like alternate reality uh, explanations. I don't know why no, why man. they're so fascinating <laughs> to me, but I love it because it's all related. That's why it's all, it's, related. it's all related. I can loop it all back. That's why one of the reasons I had Kotler. He was a double PhD in uh, anthropology and quantum physics, and he's terrible at math. So he's knuckled down to do quantum physics, but his the reason he did both, his reason for doing both, beyond an influence from his parents, was that his whole mission in life is to figure out why humans are human. Like, what is our why? You know, yeah. why do we exist? And what's our what is it that we're evolving toward? And it, to him, the two ideas of history and science are in, interwoven. You know, they're both ways to look at humanity and our role in the universe and explore these concepts. And that's that comes straight out of my own life. That's that's why I study both all the time. I always have. 
Absolutely. <clears throat> Anywho, yeah, so there's some good books about this kind of stuff. As much as we we we, we bum on uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's written physics for people in a hurry. Yeah. There's another one that's I think is the best one out there, and it's Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. I think is that what it's called. Okay. I'll have to look it up. It's got a is a name I can't remember. I think it's Italian. That book is fantastic. It talks about the slit experiment and it it's basically it's not dumbing down anything, but it's simplifying so that it can be understood by someone outside, you know, the physics. Uh, it takes the math out of it. Yeah. Basically, it's like, hey, here's what we're trying to do, here's what happened and trying to explain it from, you know, like a story perspective rather than from a mathematical perspective, which it's really cool. It helps me because I'm not good at math either. And I, I I don't understand the language. And so I love when a, an author can take something like this and reconcile it with the English language that we know without, yeah. you know, because there's all these concepts that they're trying to explain that literally can only be explained through mathematics. And so for, you know, to be able to explain it in, in a different kind of from a different perspective is uh, is awesome. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's all related. All this stuff is related. The reason Newtonian physics breaks down isn't because it's wrong. It's because we just need more. We need more. There's quant. That's where quantum physics has to come in. Classical physics yeah. just doesn't explain what we can't see. And that's the thing. That's the thing to realize is that we have gaps in our knowledge. Yeah, and that's why it's so dangerous. The some of the ideas that have been kicked around in the past two years alone of you know tr- trust the science, follow the science, which is completely counter to science like you you have to question this one of the things that this guy talks about the doctor who wrote this the physicist who wrote this paper i'm trying to see if i can just spot it real quick but he basically says he's trying to he wants this to be disproved like the idea is oh here it is with with this respect it could be considered as a proposal for the theory of everything and as such, it should be easy to prove it wrong. That's exactly what science is. If science yeah. is about proving things wrong. That's <laughs> the idea wrong. is, right, you question. So we get a theory, we get an idea, you know, we get a hypothesis, we test the hypothesis, it washes out as a theory. We can reliably trust that theory and use it for things, useful things. You know, look at relativity as a theory has led to things like your cell phone, your computer, you know, digital technology. These are all a result of our knowledge of relativity. Doesn't mean that theory is flawless. It means that we know enough of about this phenomenon that we can leverage and use it. It's a little bit like how people get into their car every day. You may not know how the car works. You just know that if it has gas and the battery is good that it's going to start and it's going to take you to the grocery store. And do but what you do. Yeah, but that's an incomplete knowledge that is still useful. This is also incomplete knowledge that could still be useful. So we know that there's gaps in our knowledge about how the universe works from the quantum level to the Newtonian level. I love how he put it, you know, he basically he thinks of it in terms of quantum uh, relativity and the observer effect. The whole observer effect is a whole other thing that we could talk about for an hour because it's or more because the implications of it are profound, you know, like just the fact that you are watching something and your expectations for it can alter the outcome is is magic. That's literally magic. So talk about spooky action at a distance, right? Yeah, exactly. Spooky. (laughs) That is spooky. 
and it and, and it, the implications of it are so profound they're just they can be life altering when you start really digging into it so right. yeah anyway <laughs> i will i can and will get amped up over this repeatedly within the same conversation so if we don't wrap we're Let's going to wrap. be talking about this for another hour just heaven saying. forbid we can't be doing that <laughs> people have to go about their lives you have to get into that car that they don't understand how it works so the show is going to become stuff that's real long that <laughs> <laughs> was cool at first <laughs> it started cool and then but now is derivative yeah uh all right yeah hey you heard it here first folks stuff that's real that you didn't know is real but also is cool you know Machu Picchu is real, but hopefully you learned something you know you didn't know about Machu. I Picchu. love Machu Picchu. That's Machu a great Picchu. topic. It's a good name. It's just a fun thing to say. It's a fun word to say. Yeah. Machu Picchu. Let's somehow say hello and goodbye. Machu it's Picchu. Like Aloha. I'm gonna say Machu Picchu. There's a there was a commercial from like the 80s for American Express, I think, where somebody kept trying to make a phone call to a place and he kept getting a a bar on in like the Bahamas or something or. <laughs> Whatever, and he would the guy, the bartender would always answer the phone, Mokalaka Pisai. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't remember that. Yeah. So that's I say that all the time. I'll sometimes answer the phone that way, Mokalaka Pisai. I have no idea what it means. I could be just <laughs> telling this guy to go F themselves. Right. But <laughs> probably does. We'll do an episode yeah. about that sometime. Yeah. How Kevin answers the phone. <laughs> we'll get out of your hair. Thanks, folks, for listening. Appreciate your time. If you have anything that you want us to talk about, I'm sure somebody's checking it. Yeah, you can reach us at hello at stufftheatsreal.com. We hope you've had a good week. We hope you will have a good week. Wherever we you are, whatever you are, we hope you buy our books. That's what we hope. hope. Go buy our books. We talk about all this stuff <laughs> in a slightly less rambly sense in our fiction. Yeah. Uh, so highly recommend going to pick up those. Uh, again, my name is Nick Thacker, and this is my friend Kevin Tumlinson, and we are done with the show. Goodbye, everyone. I will see you later. He, I told him not to do that. He did it anyway. <laughs> he told me I always say, I always go quiet <laughs> at the end. He always goes, bye. I'll see you. Bye. <laughs> this has been NPR. Stuff that's real. Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages, eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com slash str.